Pearl Church exists to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. Divine love, we so often feel the need to please you and everyone around us. Help us to abide within your loving embrace. Amen. And please be seated. This morning, we continue in our Eastertide sermon series titled Evolutionary Life, which is exploring some of the evolutionary barriers that can hinder human flourishing. This sermon series began with the good news of repentance, which very much aligns with contemporary findings on neuroplasticity, which is to say we can change. We can change. Our brains can rewire and actually restructure on a neural level. And this is good, very good news, isn't it? Two weeks ago, Pastor Ben talked about the barrier of criticism. Uh, Last week, we considered the barrier of tribalism. And this morning, we're going to consider the barrier of pleasing. To please is to cause others to feel happy or satisfied. I'd like to say that again. To please is to cause others to feel happy or satisfied. Synonyms for pleasing include being nice, agreeable, pleasant, pleasurable, satisfying, gratifying, welcoming, good, acceptable, enjoyable, entertaining, delightful, or lovely. Combining the definition of pleasing with its synonyms, we actually arrive very quickly at the methodology that many of us often use in order to please others. To please is to cause others to feel happy or satisfied by our being nice, agreeable, pleasant, pleasurable, satisfying, gratifying, welcoming, good, acceptable, enjoyable, entertaining, delightful, or lovely. Now, to begin, I want to make clear that pleasing is not in and of itself bad. Thinking in terms of evolutionary psychology, the skill or ability to please others is baked into our evolutionary DNA. Relating back to last Sunday's sermon on tribalism, it was essential for our ancestors to please the people in their tribes because pleasing helped to secure their place in the tribe. And so closely related, perhaps even indistinguishably related, is our propensity to please in order to secure attachment within our tribes. Now, depending on your personality and the tribes that each of us find ourselves abiding within, we've all developed our own unique methodology for securing attachment which could look like being nice or agreeable or pleasant or pleasurable or satisfying. I could go through the whole list again. In most cases, each of us has learned to embody an assortment of these various methods, depending on our personality and tribes, in order to secure attachment. And so, I want to be clear, pleasing is not in and of itself a bad thing. 
because it is essential to secure attachment within tribes, whether those tribes be familial or social or occupational or even religious. And this, I think, is where things begin to get interesting. While the skill of pleasing is essential to our ability to attach, many of us have come to prioritize pleasing others at the expense of our very own selves. Here's what I mean. As already stated, to please is to cause others to feel happy or satisfied. While the skill is essential to attachment, in that moment where we're trying to please and satisfy others, we can very quickly and easily lose ourselves because it's altogether easy in our primordial bones to sacrifice our own happiness and satisfaction in order to bring others happiness and satisfaction. And this, while it secures attachment, can also be at the very same time for each of us a significant loss, a significant moment of disintegration in our own humanity. And for many of us, this has happened at a very young age that is rarely reflected upon. Now, I've told this story before, but I was about seven, eight, nine-ish years old, and we were packing up our house. It felt like the house because at the time I had two brothers and three sisters, my mom and my dad, and we were going to the beach for a week. And this was very exciting, but it meant that we had to stuff the van full of things. And I don't know where my dad was. He was doing something. But all I remember was my mom, my sisters, my brothers. We were loading everything in, and I was being as ornery as could be. I was just causing all kinds of trouble. I think it was my way of escaping, helping out. And in that moment, on that day, I was wearing a brand new red tank top that I had gotten. I don't remember where I got it from. I, I do remember that like the cosmos was like swirling on the front. And I remember putting it on, and I remember feeling pretty good about myself. I was wearing a tank top. It was nice and cool in the warm air. I was starting to get muscles, and I remember feeling kind of proud of my body. But I just kept being ornery. My mom kept saying, Mike, knock it off. And I kept saying, okay, and kept being ornery. And she kept saying, Mike, knock it off. And I remember this moment out in the driveway. It was me, my sisters, my brothers, my mom, and my mom just lost it. And she said, Mike, you think you're so cool in your little red tank top picking on everybody? Well, I'll tell you what, you're not cool. You're not cool at all in your little red tank top. Oh. And that moment for me, it was a significant moment. I remember feeling so, so embarrassed. I remember feeling like I was on stage and everybody was looking at me. To be clear, I don't tell this story to shame or blame my mom. My mom was actually incredibly kind and warm and gentle. But in that moment, she was overwhelmed. And she didn't have the skills to gently cope with my troublemaking. And for me, this story, and as I think back over the course of my life, many stories similar to this one, they're becoming more and more helpful to me as I seek to deepen into who I truly am. A handful of months ago, I was listening to a meditation in which I was asked to recall a time long, long ago in which I felt free, like completely free to be myself. And immediately, my thoughts took me to that red tank top story that I just told you about. But here's the thing. Over the years, I've thought a whole bunch about how that moment hurt. 
But until this particular meditation, I had never thoughtfully considered myself prior to that moment. And so with my eyes closed and all of my attention on myself prior to that moment of pain, I can remember putting on that red tank top and feeling so free. I can remember putting on that red tank top and feeling so innocent. I can remember putting on that red tank top and feeling so happy. I can remember putting on that red tank top and feeling strong and beautiful and confident. During the meditation, that memory of my free self brought me such joy that tears began welling up in my eyes. I can, although faintly, still remember that child. Which makes me want to ask, can you remember that child? Like, not me, but you. Can you remember a time, a season, a moment where you were very young and very free? I mean, if you would, uh, with me, just for a moment, would you close your eyes? Try to think back, like, like before the pain, before that person said that, before that kid at recess did that, before you saw in your parents' eyes that look that made you know that you needed to become that, like before all of those things, can you just see yourself in a moment where you were just free? Maybe you're building a sandcastle or kicking a ball or jumping out of the bathtub and running through your house naked. This was you before all of that pain started to be felt and noticed and embodied. With my particular memory of freedom firmly in my mind, the person leading the meditation then encouraged me to recall a moment when I felt afraid or scared or embarrassed or ashamed. And very quickly, I remembered my interaction with my mom. And that is when it happened. Like there was a connection that, that clicked in my brain. I came to realize that in that moment and in similar moments in my life, I began to lose some of myself. And as a result, rather than living freely as myself, I began to pay close attention, like really close attention to how others were seeing me. And I began trying to become just what I thought others wanted me to be. And with that realization, the tears really started to flow. Can you remember a moment in your earliest years when you started becoming something else, something other, not for yourself, but for somebody else? You see, that's how it happens. At an early age, we come to lose ourselves in the midst of pain and trauma by becoming something else, something other, in order to remain attached to those with power in order for us to survive. Now, psychologists have lots of names for this. One name that I found to be really helpful is armor. Armor. Many of us, due to pain, fear, or trauma, became something else in order to please those in power to secure our attachment. And that something else, right? That something else in order to please somebody else is. It is very much like armor because it's not actually the little, free, and innocent you in the world any longer. And this is where the important work begins, I think. It's the important work of reintegrating yourself with yourself. 
It's the important work of slowly, intentionally, and persistently beginning to remove one layer of armor at a time in order to dig down deep to you. And this brings me to shame, gratitude, and repentance. Shame. When we come to realize that we've built armor by becoming something else for somebody else as adults, it's very easy for us to slip into shame and guilt. Like when you've realized that you've done that, perhaps you've had thoughts like this. I shouldn't have done that. I regret that. I wish I would have responded differently. What was I thinking? But here's the thing. It's not your fault. It's not your fault because when you shape-shifted, it wasn't a thoughtful adult decision. Rather, it was your young, vulnerable child self stuffed full of evolutionary DNA doing exactly what needed to happen in order to survive by remaining attached to the people in your life who had all of the power. Too silly, too loud, too quiet, too serious, too queer, too energetic, too shy, the list can just go on and on and on. Too much, too little, you fill in the word. And you see, that's when it happens. Mask, cover, armor, become what we need to become. Push down what we need to push down, and hopefully we will remain attached to those with all of the power. And so please don't beat yourself up. Don't beat yourself up for surviving, that's for sure. Don't beat yourself up for becoming something to remain attached. In fact, instead, how about this? Rather than shame and guilt, what if we could take a moment to marvel at how our evolutionary bodies did what they needed to do when we were so young and vulnerable in order to survive? How incredible is that? We changed as children in order to be what we thought others needed us to be in order to remain attached and to feel safe. That is actually marvelous. Which brings me to gratitude. What if rather than hating our armor or seeing our armor as some kind of deficiency, what if we were to try and thank our armor that helped us to survive? It would look something like this. Mike, I, I see you. This is me talking to me. Mike, I see you. I see you feeling so embarrassed. I see you in that red tank top trying to figure out how quickly you could get to your room to change. I see you feeling so exposed. I see you deciding to never wear another tank top in your entire life. I see you being very intentional to not wear clothes that draw attention to yourself so that people don't think that you're trying to be cool. Mike, I see you trying so hard. I see you. And Mike, while it may not or may have been necessary, I see your little evolutionary body doing what it thought it needed to do in order to survive. But Mike is an adult who no longer needs to worry about survival in the same kinds of ways I want to say thank you. Thank you, pleasing armor. Thank you, pleasing Mike. Thank you for everything that you did for me, but here's the thing, you are no longer needed. It's time for me to be truly and fully me. And this brings me to repentance. As I shared a few weeks ago, biblical repentance is a couple things. Biblical repentance is having our minds changed, and biblical repentance is making a journey home. You see, the decision that it's time for me to be me 
independent of everyone around me, especially those with power. The decision that it's time for me to be me is both kinds of repentance. It's the beginning of a changed mind. I no longer have to please in order to survive. In fact, at this stage in my adult life, I must move beyond my compulsion to please if I am to survive in an integrated way. And it's this very mindset that spins us around and sends us on a sacred journey home. Sarah Blondin writes a poem about this sacred journey of repentance. It reads... The moment you separated from your heart, the moment you closed, quieted, pushed away, turned from, disowned, lost sight of goodness, the exact moment you began to splinter from love, a part of you began doing everything in your power to bring you back. Just as a mother who has lost her child will never tire of standing at the ocean's edge, calling out her beloved's name, sending prayers for survival, blessings in bottles out to sea. She, your heart, began to do the same once you were set adrift. You were never lost, dear one, for the moment you divided, your heart began doing everything in its power to bring you home. Blondin calls this your heart. You were never lost, dear one, for the moment you divided, your heart began doing everything in its power to bring you home. I think another possible word for heart here could be God. You were never lost, dear one, for the moment you divided, God began doing everything in its power to bring you home. But you see, I think many of us have a difficult time understanding God in this way because many of us grew up in religious systems in which God was the very reason for which we had to disintegrate in order to remain attached. But what if that wasn't actually God? Like, what if that was religious people in religious systems who are unable to do the important work that we're talking about right now, and as a result, they projected their reality, which is to say they projected their God that needed to be pleased onto our very own lives. But what if that is not God? As Christians, we trust in Jesus as the physical embodiment of the divine. Do you remember what this physical embodiment of the divine said to children? Grow up! No. Stop doing that! No. Become something else! No. From Mark chapter 9, Jesus took a little child and had him stand among them. Taking him in his arms, he said to them, the adults, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. This is very different, isn't it? This is very different from grow up, stop doing that, become something else, something other than what you actually are, isn't it? In fact, in this passage, Jesus, the physical embodiment of the divine, holds up children as his very own self in the world. And he says to the adults that if they desire to welcome him, then they will welcome children who are in some mystical way his very own body. Isn't that beautiful? It's beautiful. Many of us have tried so hard to become less child and more adult according to the adults in our lives with power, but Jesus is clearly saying here that children are divine. 
And consider this passage from Mark chapter 10. People were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter into it. And so you see, perhaps we Christian adults have gotten it all wrong. Like we think that we need to believe something that is difficult to believe or God will not love us. Or we think that we need to do something or become something or stop doing something or cut a part of ourselves out of ourselves or else God will not love us. But according to Jesus, it's the adults who need to become like children, not the other way around. When Asher was little, we'd get to a park. He'd see kids playing all over the place. He'd close his eyes, open his arms, and he would declare, friends. (laughs) Every person, even strangers, are potential friends to a child. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven belongs to these. When Phoebe was little and feeling sad, she would say, before the tears even started to roll, I need a tissue, I'm going to cry. (laughs) Embodied and able to feel herself in the world. And Jesus says the kingdom of heaven belongs to these. When Miles was little and we tried to get him to do things that he didn't want to do, he would sit down, put his arms around his chubby belly, and he would declare, nope, (laughs) I'm not going to do it. Capable of saying no when something doesn't feel quite right. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven belongs to these. And it makes me wonder, what are we afraid of? What do we think we need to do or to become in order to be loved by God? I've begun to think that the work isn't actually about becoming something else or something other. I've begun to think that the work isn't actually about becoming less child and more adult. These days, I'm beginning to think that the work is going home to find our very selves, pre-trauma, pre-wounds, pre-worry, that we may be detached and die if we don't do just the right thing. Because that self was the free self. It was. That self was the embodied self. It was. That self was awash in existence itself without the inclination that existence could be any other way. Paul explains in the book of Acts, in God we live and move and have our being. In God we move and live and have our being as even some of your own poets have said, for we too are God's offspring. Beloved church, children of God, you do not need to please anyone else by becoming anything other in order to survive. The work is to go deep down into your deepest self, which is your truest self, that you that existed in a world of friends and feelings and agency before you ran for cover. Pearl Church, I believe that divine love is inviting us again and again to head north into the core of our very selves. This journey is the furthest thing possible from a slippery slope. For truly, it's a sacred journey to the very gates of heaven itself. May it be so, and let us pray.
We hope that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.